0: If you've got a Bible, grab it and make your way to Luke chapter 15. It's going to be on page 874. Uh, We'll be picking back up with our study through Luke. Like I said, got back yesterday from the beach. We had a great trip, Uh, dropped off one of our kids on the way back. So five sixths of us are back and we'll look forward to the other one coming back next week. Uh, But glad that she is down there first time. And for those of you who are are parents of, of students or have been parents of students for a while and your kids are in sixth grade and they're going on a trip for the first time, I get it. It's a little bit nerve-wracking, but uh, it's a good group, just a good kid. It's going to be a great time for all the students that are, that are down there. But just jumping back into the saddle after a 10-hour drive yesterday, um, Luke chapter 15. One of my favorite chapters in the entire gospel of Luke, and it's kind of a trilogy of Parables. You've got, we read two of them just a minute ago, you've got the, the parable of the lost sheep, and then you've got the parable of the lost coin, and then you can have the parable that, of what's a lot of times referred to as the prodigal son, and we'll come back to that in a minute, but it's important to understand what Jesus is doing. He's, he's got these two groups of people who are around him. He's got, a, he's got the Pharisees and the scribes, and he's got tax collectors and sinners, and he's kind of laying out to them, hey, here is what the gospel is all about. And so he gives these little trilogy of parables. And the one we're going to be picking up on this afternoon or this morning is going to be the parable of the prodigal son. But I don't like that term. I don't think it captured. I think it's not the best name because it's a story of two sons. It's not just a story of one son. It's a story of two sons. So it's really the parable of, of two sons. And the, the, the younger son is the tax collectors and scribes, all right? Wayward living, reckless living. I'm sorry, the, the younger son is a, the tax collectors and sinners. Just wayward living, reckless living. And then the older son, the older brother, represents the Pharisees and the scribes. So Jesus is very much trying to draw some parallels with the crowd that's around him and teach them a little bit about themselves, a little bit about sin, and a whole lot about who He is and who the Father is and salvation that comes through Christ. And so it's very much a story of two brothers, not just one. And nothing's influenced my thought on Luke chapter 15 more than a short little book uh, by Timothy Keller called Prodigal God. If you've ever read that... uh, it's a great read. I encourage you to pick it up and read through it. It's like 100 pages. It's very, very short. But if you don't have that book or don't want to pick it up, well, good news, I'm going to give you the cliff notes this morning. Because, I mean, that's how good it is. And again, these two, these two groups that, that, that we have here, the tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees and scribes, what Jesus is going to do through this parable is completely dismantle the two predominant approaches to life that have existed across all humanity in all spheres of the globe. He's going to dismantle those and he's going to show the utter bankruptcy of both of them and point us to the hope of the gospel. That's something just completely other. It's something that is just completely different than either approach to life. So much so, so foreign, that when... Uh, Christianity began, the Romans did not even recognize it as a religion because it was so weird and so different. I mean, you've got this empire that spans from India to England, from North Africa to Germania, and they've never seen anything like this. And so they actually called Christians atheists because it didn't match anything that they had ever heard of. It's just in a different category from anything else. And Jesus really shows us this in Luke chapter 15, just the radical nature of the gospel, especially up against the faulty, humanly constructed approaches to life and possible life after death that exist in the world out there. And so let's just make our way through the story. We'll do that and then we'll come back and we'll pick up three lessons that I think Jesus has for us in this parable. And so let's make our way through This story, chapter uh, 15, page 874. Pick it up in verse 11. Read the first couple of verses with me. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And so this is Act 1. It's going to be all about the younger brother. And in Act 1, what we've got here is we've got him asking for his inheritance, which in that culture, this is a Middle Eastern, uh, first century, patriarchal culture. And so what, what happens, is the older brother gets double whatever the younger brother gets. So since there's two of them, the older brother is going to get two-thirds, the younger brother is going to get one-third. And so uh, he asks for that, and, and we miss a whole lot here just because of cultural distinctives and, and differences. A lot of times we'll take our cultural norms of 21st century America and try to place that on 1st century Middle East, and, and that's not the way it works. 1st century Middle Eastern culture was completely different, very patriarchal, the dad rules everything. And so we've got to kind of try to understand what's going on in the context of that time. And so with that in mind, with this cultural difference, this, this question, this request... Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. This is an absolute insult, disgracing the Father. You you do not do this in this culture because the only time inheritance was spoken of was at the death of the Father. And so for him asking for this prior to his dad actually dying is is, is saying to everyone around, I wish my dad was dead. I want his stuff. I don't care about him, but I want his stuff. And I wish he wasn't here. And so he's saying to his dad, I don't care about you. I don't like you, but I want your stuff. You're nothing to me except a means to an end. So this is an unheard of, absolutely insulting, degrading request in that culture. But the father's response is even more astounding. because he says, chapter, verse 12, verse uh, part B, and he divided his property between them. So the cult- culturally, the right thing would have, you know, right here would have been to disown the son. First century Middle Eastern patriarchal culture. You should have disowned the son and violently driven him away and never seen him again. That was the culturally and right acceptable thing to do. To do anything else was a violation of culture. And open you to increased public shame on top of your son saying, I wish you were dead. But the dad doesn't do this here. He doesn't retaliate. Instead, he he gives him the inheritance. And the Greek word for property here, inheritance, in some of your Bibles, is the word bios. We get biology from that. It means life, study of life, biology. And the reason that word's used here, and not just property, and it says life, is because, again, culturally, in your life, in that day, property, inheritance, life, like, your land was your life. We don't get that today because we don't live in an agrarian society anymore. You know, we, we have this home and then we'll move to this home on this little quarter quarter of an acre of a lot, and this it's not a big deal. I understand a little bit of it, not like this, but a little bit of it. I'm the fourth generation. I mean, if you've been here any length of time, I've talked about pine logs, so here it comes. I'm the fourth generation to grow up on the farm that on my on my family's farm. He was born in 18, he was bought in 1891. Folks Came from Pickens County, South Carolina, and came to that area. Fourth generation, and I'm going to be the last generation. No, it's, it's not going to be there forever. My, my dad, nor my brother, nor myself have enough money to buy out my aunt, who has half of it now that my grandmother's dead. And so it's going to get sold. And so that breaks my heart you know generations have had and that land it's like it's like that john denver song about the old farm you know it feels like a long lost friend of mine right and so it breaks my heart that it's going to at least half of it be sold but that like the tie i have to that land is nothing like they had here they transworth the word bias because your your land was your life Everything that you owned, any inheritance, any property, anything of value was your land. And your social status in the culture was based upon your land, who you were, your whole identity. All of this was tied to the land. And so to lose land, all right, to lose property is to lose identity, is to lose social standing, is to lose life. And so this request here, give me my inheritance, give me my property is asking his dad to tear your life apart, to lose social status, to lose your bias, to lose your life. And so to make sure you're getting the picture of the father here, he's openly being rejected by his son. Openly. Openly humiliated. And he's still loving his son. Still. He doesn't retaliate. I mean, we get rejected. Or, or we just feel rejected or think that we're being rejected and, and we retaliate. We come with, a, with the heat of anger or the heat of ice. But this dad does neither. In the face of rejection and rebellion, he loves. And so he gives it. And so verse 13, his son's going to go squandered. If you're familiar with this story at all, you know how this is going to go. Look at it with me. Verse 13 anything. When you're a Jew and you want to eat what pigs are eating, you know you're in a bad place. And so he recognizes this. And so verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I, I know what I'll do. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son treat me as one of your hired servants. And so he's wasted everything on reckless living and he decides to go home and confess and ask to become a hired hand knowing he can never be a son but maybe he could at least pay his dad back a little bit and just uh, you know take care of the shame and the guilt that he feels for how he's done and so he prepares this speech he's got it ready all right he's got his uh, and he, he he's got it rehearsed he goes back And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And so notice the heart of the father here. He runs to his son. He runs out to him. And when the son starts trying to roll out his rehearsed speech in verse 21, the father won't hear it. He interrupts him and yells out to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe. Now, who has the best robe? The father does. And so notice this. The father doesn't wait for his son to clean up or anything. But he says, go and cover my son's nakedness and rags with the robe of my office in my position, and we're going to a feast. The father would have nothing, nothing of the son earning his way back into the family. He said, no, no, no. I'll bring you back. And so, make sure you understand this. Nothing. Not even total regret and contrition merits the favor of God. It's a free gift. The father's love and acceptance are absolutely free. This is craziness. And that's act one. And now we roll over to act two, the older brother. And now it's his turn to disgrace the father. And so look at verse 25 with me. Now, his older son was in the field as he came and drew near to the house he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come home and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command." Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, well, you won't even name him. You won't even call him brother. Just this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And so the younger son has absolutely rejected and insulted his father. But now the older son gets on the action as well because verse 28, he's so angry that he refuses to go into the party. Which in that culture... To refuse to attend the father's party, especially probably the biggest party, the biggest event he's ever had. To remain outside is to publicly make a vote of no confidence in the actions of your father. And so it's just an absolute slap in the face and humiliating to the father. And when you look in here and start looking, seeing what's going on, you'll you, you start to see that what what he's really most furious about, what the son is most furious about, is the amount of money that his dad is spending on this younger, deadbeat brother. Because you've got to understand, meat was a delicacy, right? They didn't eat meat with every meal. It's like when I'd go to my grandmother's house. She'd roll out corn on the cob and sliced tomatoes and sliced cucumbers and pickled beets, which are nasty. And sliced watermelon and okra. And that was what, I mean, that's what you had. There's no meat. That's how they ate. A lot of grains, a lot of breads, a lot of vegetables, not a whole lot of meat. Now, it was a delicacy. But the most expensive of all meat was the fattened calf. This is like Ruth's Chris. This is like Stockyard. This is crazy expensive. And so he's got this for this brother here. And, 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 and throwing a feast with the fattened calf, that only happened on the rarest of occasions. And usually the entire village was invited. So this is, I mean, this is you guys who've had weddings for your kids, you know how expensive that is. Put that on steroids. That's what's going on here. He's spending that kind of me, uh, money. There's music and there's dancing. There's celebration. Uh, the, the son has come back. The community's involved. They're receiving him back into the family. And the older brother is ticked off about it. Because anything that the father, any of the money that the father spends is now coming out of his future inheritance. Right? The younger brother squandered all his, so now any you're, you're going to use my money on this guy? That's kind of what's implied here when he says, verse 29, but he answers his father, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. What's kind of implied there is. I've obeyed you. I've done what's right. Therefore I have some right over. What you own. And how you spend our money. And so beneath the veneer. Of moral conformity. The elder brother is proving. That he has the same heart. As the younger brother. He just goes about trying to get it. A different way. He doesn't want the father either. He wants the father's things. But he's trying to get it by moral goodness, moral conformity. Why can't me and my friends have a goat and have a party? And this entire exchange, he's just insulting his dad. Again, patriarchal culture. You speak with the utmost respect to the dad. And he's not calling him father. He's he's saying, look, you. Here's what you've done. Here's what you did. And so the the best example I could think of is if we're at a, a wedding. If you've got a sister who's getting married and your, your, your brother and your dad just get into this just, you know, fight, shouting match, everyone's watching, it's very awkward, you're embarrassed, it's like a Ben Stiller movie where you don't want to watch because it's crazy, but you want to see what's happening at the same time, that's kind of what's happening here. Just shocking, awkward, what, you know, just absolutely humiliating to the dad. But once again, watch the father. He's being rejected. He's being disgraced by another son. And what does he do? He comes out to his son and he asks him to come in. Verse 31, son, all right, the term of endearment. Literally, my child, come in, come in, get in here. So I could add saying, son, I would not disown your brother. And I will not disown you. Come in to the feast. Despite how you've insulted me. Come in to the feast. And the story ends. And there's no closure. Like what happens? Does he go in? Does he not go in? We don't know. And so what are we to make of this parable? What are the lessons Jesus is trying to drive home with the story of these two wayward and absolutely insulting sons? I think there are three major lessons. And lesson number one is this. Rebellion and religion are two sides of the same damning coin. Rebellion and religion are two sides of the same damning coin. Because everybody gets that the younger brother is a sinner. Reckless living, prostitutes, pigsty, insults the father, self indulgent. Everybody gets that. But notice, both sons are alienated from the father. Both of them. Both wanted the father's things, not the father. Both just kind of wanted to use the father to get those things. They didn't love the father. They love status. They love wealth. They love uh, pleasure. Both of them are alienated from the father. And here's what's huge. One of them did it by being bad. And one of them did it by being good. But they're both alienated from the Father. One son is lost in badness. One son is lost in goodness. And in the end, the bad son is saved and the good son appears to be lost. We don't get the end of the story. And this is crazy. The rebellious is saved and the religious is lost. And the older brother's not lost in spite of his goodness, but because of it. I won't go into the feast because I never did anything wrong. And so, folks, it's not his sin that's separating him from the father. It's the pride, which is a sin, but it's the pride in his moral record. I've been so good. And what Jesus is teaching here is that you can rebel against God and be alienated from Him either by breaking His rules or by keeping all of them diligently for the wrong reasons. This is why it's so shocking of a message. Careful obedience to God's will may serve as a strategy for rebelling against God because you don't want God. You want His stuff. You want what He can do for you. You want what he can give. And so you'll do a little dance trying to get him in your corner so that he's a puppet and he has to do what you say because you obeyed. This is the prosperity gospel. Live this way and God has to do this. And that's the older brother here. I've I've done what's right. I've done this and this and this. Therefore, Father, you owe me. You need to do this. Folks, if you, if you believe like the older brother that God ought to bless you and help you because you've worked so hard to obey Him and you're a good person. And as Tim Keller put it, Jesus may be your helper. He may be your example. He may even be your inspiration. But He's not your Savior. You're serving as your own Savior. Your, your goodness is if done for the wrong reason, can send you to hell. Matthew 7. Right? Matthew 7. All these people will gather around and say, Lord, Lord, did I not do this and this and this and this for you? And I will say to you, depart from me. I never knew you. And so the younger brother's rebellion and the older brother's religion, it's just two sides of the same damning coin and they both portray the two predominant ways and approaches to life across the world the way of religious and moral conformity older brother i've always done what's right out and the way of rebellious self-discovery the younger brother i'll do what i want don't tell me what to do i'll make my own rules and their hearts are very similar they're just carrying it out a different way you've got older brother, religious moral conformity. I'll submit, I'll work hard, I'll do what's right. It's very conservative, all right? Pharisees and scribes. And then you've got younger brother, uh, rebellious self-discovery. I'll decide what's right and wrong for me. I'll do as I want, how I want, when I want. Generally more liberal. This is tax collectors and sinners. And each side says, my way is what's best for the world and is the way to be happy and things will go better if they do it my way. And Jesus says to both, you are wrong. And you're both lost. And you're both making the world terrible in different ways. See, so he's echoing me. <laughs> and that was sacrilegious. I need to repent. <laughs> and I just did. Just two sides of the same damning coin. I mean, if we, if we even want to go political for a moment. Red states think that blue states are the problem. Blue states think that red states are the problem. And Jesus is saying, no, you're all the problem. All of you are the problem. And I love you. And I love you. But set up, setting up these divides, is that not what happens so often? I mean, religious people often divide the world into two. And so they have, you know, as they define it, morally good people. And then as they define it, morally bad people. All right, all you other people. But the rebellious kind of do the same thing. The open-minded, progressive people, they're in. And the judgmental, bigoted people, all of you other people, you're out. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no wrong again it's the humble who are in and it's the prideful who are out and so you're both out because you're prideful about what you think is right the gospel is not religion or irreligion it's not morality or immorality moralism or relativism it's not even something that's on the spectrum it's something just completely different so other That the Romans don't even recognize that it's a religion. It's just something other. Because the gospel says that it's those who know they're not good. Who know that they're not open-minded. And who need sheer grace that are in. And it's the people who ever think they are on the right side of those divides. Who are out. It's the ones who just fall in need of sheer grace. Help me, Lord. Save me! I know I'm broken. The humble; those are the ones who are in. And so the older brother and the younger brother are both wrong. And the younger brothers of the world, they wreak havoc on the world, and so do the elder brothers. And a lot of times the elder brothers, and I mean I'm going to camp out on them because that's us, right? When you read the scriptures, we're the Pharisees. You understand that, right? Church folk are the Pharisees. And the elder brothers, what happens a lot of time is we become judgmental and we live with an undercurrent of anger. Because we self-righteously feel I've lived a good life. I've done what's right. And so God owes me something. But our lives outside of a couple of, you know, seasons, short seasons of time, hardly ever go as we think they will or as we want them to go. And so if you're living a life thinking, I deserve a good life because I've been good, you're always going to have this undercurrent of anger because your life isn't living up to your expectation. And so you're going to grow judgmental of others with more perhaps visible sins than you have, but no more damning than your own. And that wreaks havoc on the world, loads of pain and misery and strife. And so everybody wants to divide the world into two blocks or what but Christianity cannot do that. Christianity cannot divide people into good people and bad people, no matter how you define that. Whether you define it as a more of a theologically liberal perspective or a theologically conservative perspective, rebellious. Religious, however you want to define it, it's just two sides of the same damning coin. They're both about saving yourself and self-justification. They don't go deep enough to get to the real heart of what's wrong with us in the world, and that's our brokenness. That's our sin. The root of which is pride and selfishness. Sin is the problem. And we're all mortally infected. And to find salvation from our sin and our salvation from our deserved condemnation, we don't need religious moral conformity and we don't need rebellious self-discovery. We need a loving Father. And that's what we have. We have a loving Father. Because notice in this parable, which of the two brothers does the Father love? Both. Both. And he goes out to both of them. And so that's lesson two for us. The Father loves the sinfully rebellious and the sinfully religious. The Father loves, loves the sinfully rebellious and the sinfully religious. And when I say that, I'm talking about people who put their hope in just doing good things. Like as a believer, that should infuse the way we live and change the way we live, but it, it drives it. So when I want to talk with people about faith and good works. Good works is the caboose. It's not the engine. Faith is the engine. And it pulls good works. But if you try to drive it this way, it doesn't work. And so the Father loves the sinfully rebellious and the sinfully religious. He loves them. Christ died for both of them. And remember, Jesus is telling this to, like, Pharisees are there. He's talking to Pharisees. And what are the Pharisees going to do in a very short while? They're going to kill him. And he's extending grace to them, saying, come into the feast, brothers. Come into the feast. And so Jesus is not a Pharisee about Phariseeism. And he doesn't get self-righteous about self-righteous people. And we need to be careful of that as well. The father loves both the sinfully rebellious and the sinfully religious. And he runs out to both of them at great cost to himself. This is the prodigalness of God. The word prodigal doesn't mean immoral. It means lavish. It means opulence. It means abundance. And the love of God is prodigal. It is lavished. His grace is abundant. It is opulent. He pours it upon us and will forgive any and everyone who will repent and believe in what he's done in Christ through Christ's life and death and resurrection. And he invites us all to the feast. The hero of the story is the Father. He runs out. He initiates. We will not seek God on our own. Sometimes it looks like we might be, but that's father, the Father working behind the scenes already. He's the hound of heaven and he's draw, He draws His people and He starts opening our eyes to the reality of the supernatural. The reality of who He is and of grace and of eternal life and forgiveness and salvation that can be yours. Like even right now in your own heart, is feeling, it's stirring inside you. If you have that, that's Him seeking you. But how's this free grace possible how's this mercy possible how how does that work it's free for us but it has a cost and jesus paid it jesus paid the cost with his life and even here we, we 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 start to see this the salvation of the younger brother was free for the younger brother but it had a great cost for the older brother We'll give verse 31 again. The father says to the older brother, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. All that is mine is yours. Like literally everything I have is yours. And that is literally true. All right. Everything I've, I've already given that away. Everything that I have left is yours. The younger son squandered everything. His one third of the inheritance is gone Everything I have left is yours. And so every robe, every ring, every fatted calf, every piece of land. And so for the younger brother to be brought back into the family, this meant that it was going to be a huge cost to the brother. Because the two-thirds that he had, now is going to be split up again. With one-third going to the younger brother. And two-thirds of the original two-thirds, somebody can do the math on that, staying with The older brother. Enormous cost to the older son. And so the younger son being made a son again is not free, all right? It's not simple to be saved. Someone has to pay. And that's why the older brother is furious about this. Absolutely furious about this. And Jesus is trying to help the Pharisees see this is you. You are furious about the salvation of others. You you are the evil brother in this. But I, I am the true and better elder brother. Jesus gives us this story here to make us long for a true and right elder brother. Jesus is the elder brother who sees the father's anguish at the loss of his son and goes out looking for his younger brother. Jesus is the one who sees my younger brother may be ruining himself and he used up all his inheritance, but I will bring him back home even at my own expense. And this guy in this story, he may not have an elder brother like that, but we do. We have a true and better elder brother. And this story makes us long for that elder brother. Because we didn't need an elder brother just to go to the next town to find us. But to go from heaven to earth to rescue us. We don't need an elder brother who brings us into God's family at the cost of his wallet, but at the cost of his life. Because on the cross, Jesus was naked so that we could be clothed in the robe of one that we don't deserve. We don't deserve the Father's robe. On the cross, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The only time, the only time Jesus called did not call God Father. And in that moment, He didn't call Him Father because He was not being treated as a son. Why? So that we could be. So that we could be treated as sons and daughters. On the cross, Jesus paid the debt that we owe. He had everything. All that the Father owns was His and He laid it down to bring us home. And when we get the cost of this, the lavish, prodigal love of God and grace that's poured out like a never-ending waterfall upon us, it will change everything. Your whole approach to God in life will change. It won't be about religion or moral conformity, just doing good to do good because that's how God will love me. You'll see, no. It's a drop of water in the ocean. It doesn't work. That way of life that's ruled humanity for thousands of years. I'll do good to get this God to bless. No. And you also learn that it's not about rebellion or self-discovery. It's about Christ. And trusting in Him and Him alone to be what makes you right with the Father. His life for your life. His death for your death. His resurrection as a foretaste of your resurrection. Not your life of moralism, not your life of self-discovery. And when you get that, it will drive you to humility. And humility will change the way you deal with criticism. It'll change how you deal with suffering when it comes into your life. How you respond to people who are different than you, who think differently than you. You'll stop putting people in groups and see that you're just as sinful as anyone else. Just in a different way. Basically, you'll begin to become a little bit more like Christ day by day by day. Who endured criticism. Who endured suffering. And who showed love and extended grace even to those who very soon were going to kill Him. And so friends, from this parable, let's learn a couple of things. and do a couple of things. Number one, repent. Was repent of seeking to make categories of people. However you do that. If you do it from this bent, or you do it from this bent, just making categories of people and vilifying one group, we're all sinners. Rebellion and religion are just two sides of the same damning coin. There's not bad guys and good guys. If, If there are biblically, that would just be bad guys and Jesus. And we're all in the bad guy camp. He's the only one in the good camp and this is this is fundamental to the gospel. If you think you're better than someone else, you, you don't get the gospel. The gospel humbles us. Sheer grace, we need the Father, we need the Son, we need the Holy Spirit. Secondly, repent of your self-justification and fall on the sheer grace and mercy of God. He's kind. He saves. He loves you. He calls you to the feast. And so respond to that. Whether you've lived a life of sinful rebellion or a life of sinful religion, God invites you to come home to the feast. Younger brother, come to the feast. Older brother, come to the feast. I want you to come to the feast. Jesus has made a way. He's dealt with your sin. He's paid the cost. And now the Father holds out this choice to you. Will you come in? Or will you stay out? Come in. If you've never received Jesus as your Lord and Savior, He's calling today. Come in. Come to the feast. I'm here. I'm calling, I'm calling you. Come in. Come in. Let's pray. Father, Your grace that You've shown in the cross and that You display in life after life after life after life. Father, may it stagger us anew even as we contemplate Your life that was given for ours. As we remember what You've done for us on the cross. And Father, I pray that, that you would be stirring in a, a heart today who has not trusted you. And that they would come home. That they would respond to your open invitation to come home, son. Come home, daughter. I'm ready. I'm welcoming. I'm calling you home. Help them to respond to that. In Jesus' name, amen.